This episode of the podcast is brought to us by our very special sponsor. Who is that, Paul? Neste. Neste. We're so grateful to Neste, aren't we? What do they do? Do you you think they could be in the business of fighting climate change? I'm sure they're in the business of fighting climate change. I don't think they'd be sponsors of our show if they weren't. They probably wouldn't be. And do you think that they produce renewable fuels or do you think they invest in circular solutions? I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did both. Do you think they do? That would be very impressive. I really, genuinely, I do. Okay, and which country do you think they're from? Well, I think they're from Finland but I wouldn't be at all surprised if their products went all around the world. They probably do, don't they? We're very grateful to them. Thank you, Neste. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Tom here, just at the top of the episode, and I am just taking a moment of your time to remind you that we have a book coming out in just a little bit over a week. So the 25th of February, The Future We Choose, will be available everywhere. You can pre-order it now by going to globaloptimism.com. And I've been sharing these different quotes from people who have very generously um, provided them to us after they've read the book. And I actually have a very special one today because this is actually just something that I woke up the other morning and saw in my Instagram feed. And this is from Matt Haig, the author uh, in the UK, author of many brilliant books. And on his post, he said, I get sent many books on climate change, none like this. I have sat this morning and read it in one sitting. Written by the people who helped make the Paris Agreement happen, this is a clear guide to the biggest threat and opportunity of this century. Everyone should read this book. It isn't heavy to read. It's easy and urgent and ultimately empowering. An instant, urgent classic. So seeing that in my Instagram feed pretty much made my entire life worthwhile. Thank you very much, Matt. Really appreciate it. You can pre-order the book now. Here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivett Karnak. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we bring you three remarkable climate conversations about science, about leadership, and about action. Thanks for being here. Right, so this week we have a different episode of Outrage and Optimism for you. Christiana is away in Antarctica leading a National Geographic expedition. And in her absence, we are upending our format for a week. So rather than bringing you one guest interview, we're actually going to present three. Our recent trip to the World Economic Forum meant that we had the great opportunity to speak to some amazing people. But sometimes these were brief conversations up a mountain or elsewhere. And we've drawn together three of the best in this episode that we hope you'll enjoy. But just before we get into that, there was a remarkable piece of news this week, Paul. Well, indeed there was, Tom. Indeed there was. And it came from the International Energy Agency. And they have uh, declared in their evaluation that we have reached peak carbon. That is to say that the greenhouse gas emissions from human activity uh, have flatlined for the last two years. And this offers up the tantalizing prospect that finally we are on the verge of turning that corner and we will be able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from here onwards. And this is potentially quite literally the turning point that the whole climate change movement have worked for for decades. So it's phenomenally exciting. And we should stress that it's, you know, it's going to take more than just that one year of data to demonstrate a trend, of course. But still, you know, it's better than the alternative, which is that they've been going up, which they have been for the last few years. And, you know, once you dig dig into the underlying information, it's really encouraging. You know, the, the global economy grew 
2.9% last year, but emissions were flat at 33 gigatons. And this was pretty much entirely thanks to increased renewables in electricity generation in developed economies. Interestingly, the US had the largest absolute decline of 140 million tonnes or 2.9%, um, which is significant um, and actually demonstrates uh, the fact that even in the absence of the temporary absence of US leadership on climate, the economy is still moving in a direction that we can take some, some encouragement from. Well, indeed. And as Christiana likes to say, um, the sun and the wind do not send you an invoice. Yeah. Now, the United States <laughs> is fundamentally a kind of business country. Uh, the most successful corporations in the world are, are in the USA. And, uh, you know, of course, entrepreneurs there recognize that if you put up a windmill or you build a solar farm, you just kind of print free money from that point onwards. So it's an incredibly exciting time. So, I mean, just to add, I mean, everybody knows this, but the, the, the news stories related to climate change, the whole world is moving. And I personally find myself recalibrating to kind of be 10 times more ambitious in the work I do. And I'm sure many other people listening to the show must, we must all have the, the pleasure of saying, okay, how can we match the mood of the world by being that much more ambitious? Right, right. And, and of course, it's not all good news. Right? I mean, you know, in developing countries, uh, there was an increase of 400 million tonnes from the rest of the world. And 80% of that was an increase coming from Asia, where countries did increase their coal use. So that clearly requires absolute urgent attention. But a really encouraging story is actually from the EU. So the EU's emissions fell by fully 5% in a year. Um, now, you know, obviously people can say, well, the EU is a special case, very developed economy, lots of manufacturing happening in other parts of the world. But nevertheless, those are the kinds of numbers that we're going to have to achieve year on year and accelerating if we're going to do what science demands and halve emissions by 2030. So, you know, clearly these are early signs, but they're very encouraging. And we should not think we can't do this because we're already demonstrably doing it, which is fantastic. As they say, if something's true in reality, it must be true in theory. No, I mean, you know, we've got to keep an eye on the coal, right? But actually, right. Uh, it is a time to be uh, cautiously optimistic and excited and to redouble our efforts. So let's turn to our first interview. And uh, this conversation is with a remarkable person. Professor Gail Whiteman is the director of the Pentland Centre for Sustainability in Business at Lancaster University School of Management. She is a very impressive academic in her own right, but she's also an activist and an organiser who's really changing the world with her innovative approaches to involving leaders in what is happening in the frozen places of the world. Um, she is the creator of something called the Arctic Base Camp that you'll hear her discussing in this clip with Christiana, where she's brought, um, you know, the the, the tents and the camp from the Arctic to Davos, to the top of the mountain, where people will come and camp in tents overnight. She sleeps there herself. Last year, Greta and her father Svante slept there. A variety of leaders are there. And she just brings many of these different CEOs and world leaders into a different space and helps inspire them and demonstrate, um, you know, the urgency of what's happening and what we can do to improve it. Wow, she sounds incredible. Let's hear the interview. So, Gail, yes. um, you have been the promoter of this Arctic Base Camp since yes. it started. Exactly. So just give us a quick view of why you started it, 
where you are today and what you still want to do? What are, what are the new challenges and what you still want to do? Great. So we came up with the idea for Arctic Base Camp when we were actually in the Arctic. We were going through the Northwest Passage and we could see such massive changes, and that was 2010. And the idea was how could we get the Arctic into the boardrooms of companies and countries that were not necessarily interested in doing shipping or oil and gas exploration. And what we realized was is that the Arctic was about global risk and accelerating climate change. And if we knew we were going to talk about global risk, we had to come to the World Economic Forum. So the way we did that was, you know, we can't afford the budgets of, of, of the hotels here, so we decided we'd just bring the big Arctic base camp tent and we would speak uh, science to power. Awesome. And this year you are, uh, together with Callum and other wonderful people, you are starting a new campaign? Yeah, we are starting the new campaign. So the Unite Behind the Science campaign I think is really exciting because what it does is it, it, it tries to speak science to power, but as you rightly said, it brings power to the scientists. So we can look at the rigorous evidence and then hold really the rest of the world accountable to say, are we on the right science-based track? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And as I have repeatedly said, we have to anchor ourselves in science, yeah, right? Absolutely. Otherwise, we drift away into total destruction, exactly. continuous destruction. So I am grateful to you that you remind us constantly of the <laughs> anchor. Annoy annoyingly the, so. No, 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 no. Delightfully <laughs> so. Delightfully. delightfully so. Of the anchor that we have to hold in all, in all of this, in both policy and action. Yeah. So thank you very Great. much. Well, thank you very much. You've been a huge supporter of us, and you've been with us right from the start. So thank you. Super. Yeah. <laughs> So that was Gail uh, talking to Christiana a few weeks ago. I mean, I think there's so much to enjoy from what she said there. And just this concept of unite behind the science, speak science to power. I just love that concept. I think that's so important. Well, I was uh, super impressed. She talks about, you know, bringing science into the boardroom. And, you know, I think fundamentally... Um, uh, business is a logical, you know, large corporations run on kind of rationality and logic. And I think they're good with science. You know, if you bring science into great companies, they will respond with great logic. That's not to say that there aren't bad companies that are pushing in the wrong direction. But generally, the corporate system, I think, is, is a triumph of science. And uh, I think she's so smart to sort of, you know, use a hypodermic needle to, to put science into the boardroom. Very exciting. And once that penetrates, it's hard to resist, right? You can only resist reality for so long once it's presented in that kind of way. So it's such important work. Indeed, indeed. So so one of the people up there who was camping out um, very impressively, and as far as I could see from the times I went up there, having kind of the time of his life and making everybody <laughs> laugh and enjoying himself and just generally being the soul of the party is Rain Wilson. So, so Rain was cast as Dwight Schrute in the US version of The Office, um, probably much better known to US listeners than others. But, um, you know, just an amazing kind of comedian and actor and, and such a sort of entrepreneurial guy. Um, he attended Davos really using his personal profile to raise the issue of climate. And as you'll hear in this clip, he's really taken the time to educate himself about this issue so he can be an effective ambassador and draw in new types of audiences into what's really going on. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing from him. Let's hear from Rain Wilson. So, Rain, thank you so much for taking a little time out here on Base Camp. Um, rumor has it that it is your birthday today. It is, yes. Is that a true rumor? That is. Okay. Yeah, it is. Congratulations, it is, it is, first of all. The rumor is true. <laughs> the rumor is what true. What do you got for me? Had I known, I would have brought you Costa Rican coffee. Oh, okay. So, that is in my, in my debt to you still. All right. But in the meantime, 
Why did you choose to spend as much time? Because you're actually camping out here on Arctic Base Camp yeah. and, you know, celebrating your birthday. So why? Why are you doing it? Well, as I was reading more and more about climate change and becoming increasingly disturbed about what I was reading, I was like, uh, forgive my, my English. Go but for I, it. I'm gonna, I was like, you need to shit or get off the pot. Mm. And it's like, I have a good social reach and um, through social media, and I wanted to actually do something. I wanted to learn about climate change from scientists. I wanted to experience it and understand it more deeply, help raise money and awareness around it. So I joined up with this organization, Arctic Base Camp, yeah. Dr. Gail Whiteman, but along with a number of other climate uh, scientists. scientists. And our whole motto is to speak science to power. Uh, we've united with uh, Callum Grieve, uh, who, who you know, extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary human being. Indeed. And his new campaign we're about to announce right now is Unite Behind the Science. And uh, you can check that out at unitebehindthescience.online. I would say that there's greater scientific consensus around climate change than there is probably About around any other else. thing else in science, including like gravity and physics and black holes and, and, and what have you. And Even health issues, actually. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. Now, um, science. Does science tell us what is to occur? Does science explain what we're seeing? And what is the bridge between that? Are we beginning to see already today that which science had foretold and in fact even happening sooner? Wow, that is a really excellent question. I don't know that I can do that question justice because I'm just in the first couple months of kind of learning about how this stuff works. But I will say that um, the science is pretty clear. The predictors have been pretty much right on the mark, but they've actually even been behind. Like the, the, the dramatic change that's happening is even ahead of what most scientists have predicted. Yep. And um, so it's all coming true. Now, that doesn't mean that scientists can predict when a hurricane is happening or like, oh, this hurricane happened because of climate change or this drought happened because of climate change. But it's, it, it, it has to do with almost like... Some Amplification I, effect. Yes, and it's like playing Dungeons and Dragons. When you, when you roll the dice, the many-sided dice, mm -hmm. you know, you have X amount of chance of hitting an elf with your sword, right? <laughs> and then if you have a magic sword, it's a greater chance. So is there a greater chance of there being a drought because of the circumstances surrounding climate change? Yes, absolutely. So more and more, those dice are going to roll and those dice are going to hit. Drought, hurricane, forest fire, flood, extinction of an animal, etc. And those are going to increase uh, exponentially as time goes on, which is why the work that you did with the United Nations and the parents' agreements are so uh, crucial. And that, that's why when science makes a prediction, they usually have to go back the next year and say we underestimated, right? We underestimated mm. the impact because it is occurring exponentially. It is not linear. We've gone through the linear piece and we're now into exponentially growing both scale uh, as well as in extension uh, of, uh, of negative impacts as shown by Australia, very painfully. Yeah, and here's what's most important about it. It's like, you know, we're up here in the Alps and we can run into this hotel or we can fly to somewhere that's cooler and we have all these resources, but for the poorest Exactly. Of the species. Who have not contributed at all to climate change. Right. For people who have just kind of lived most of their lives with little 
you know, campfires and, and exactly. don't drive cars and, you know, don't consume electricity powered by coal plants, they're the ones that are going to be most affected. Exactly. So the, for the poorest two billion on the planet, um, the, the devastation will be um, astronomical. So if people and that's care the about deep the poor... immorality of this. Yeah. So if you care about the poor... If you care about social justice, if you care about women's rights, if you care about health, uh, health, health care, um, climate change is the granddaddy, not to be patriarchal, but it's the granddaddy issue of all issues. It is an octopus that has a tentacle in all of the human issues. It has to do with education, everything you can possibly name. Uh, that's why I wanted to um, help bring some uh, light to it. The other way of looking at that is that because it's an octopus with so many tentacles, there also is an infinite number of solutions that we can bring to it, right? Oh, nice. Because in every, in every sector that is negatively affected, you can turn that around and find the solution that decarbonizes or increases increases adaptation. So thank you so much. Thank you for taking your the time on your birthday. Yeah. And I know that there's another event waiting for both of us over there. That's right. Um, so thanks very much. Really That's appreciate great. That's great. And... Uh, uh, for my present, I'm really admiring your scarf. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Rain. Uh, that, you know, I just think it, he, he brings such a kind of refreshing perspective and attitude to all these different things. What did, what did you take from his, that conversation, Paul? Well, he's clearly a very lovely, funny human um, talking about the climate change being the granddaddy of all issues, or uh, which I think, or grandmother of all issues, but it definitely is. And talking about an octopus with tentacles in every single uh, part of society. But Christiana, quite correctly pointing out that because of that, those, all those octopus tentacles, we can take action on climate change in every single area of society. You know, people are sort of saying, you know, what can I do? Well, actually, basically, whatever you're doing, you can do something. And I thought that was a, a great insight. And just to add, um, it's wonderful when uh, prominent media personalities come forward. You know, Rain has 6.7 million followers on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram combined. And I think the the voice of people that we know and trust and like coming forward on this issue uh, to educate, entertain and inform is very, very uh, good thing. Very good thing. Totally, totally. And I've got to say, you know, I've worked on climate change for a long time. It's the first time I've ever heard anyone work in the phrase magic elf sword into a conversation about climate change, <laughs> which I thought was awesome. Well, so Clay may be able to explain to us uh, what a magic elf sword is in Dungeons and Dragons, but uh, I certainly have no idea. It's Dungeons and Dragons. If you're going to insult the greatest game of all time, you know, come on, do it right. Clay, feel free to insert a small outtake here when you do your, uh, your, your editing. Okay, okay, okay. Challenge accepted. It's time to enter the Dungeon of Explanation. Not to re-explain what Rain said, but if climate change were a five-headed evil monster in Dungeons and Dragons with a magic elf sword and it decided to strike someone, the players playing the game would roll a many-sided die to determine if the attempted magic elf sword strike was successful. If it were a 10-sided die, maybe numbers six through 10, when rolling the die would determine if the strike were successful and one through five would determine if it was a miss. But, and this is what Rain was talking about, if the magic elf sword becomes stronger when it's surrounded by CO2 emissions, and if the dungeon where the battle is taking place has a ton of CO2 emissions in it, then the magic elf sword's chances of striking become greater. And when you roll the die, maybe instead of 
6 through 10 being a successful magic elf sword strike, the numbers 4 through 10 are a successful strike. So that sounds a whole lot like a magic elf sword of doom, as it were. So there you go. That's what a magic elf sword is. Well, thank you, Clay. Now I know. Anytime. Um, cool. So, um, so the next conversation is with a remarkable guy. And actually, we saw him in Davos, but this conversation was recorded just before. And you were there, Paul. So why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, well, it was a real pleasure and honour to interview David Perry, uh, the chief executive of Indigo Agriculture. David is you know, a successful entrepreneur. What can I say? He's, uh, prior to running Indigo Agriculture, he's founded two companies in the pharmaceutical space or, you know, in medical science that have both gone on to a multi-billion dollar valuations and he's taken them through initial public offerings on the stock exchange. So he's a serious business person, very charming, very lovely, and with uh, incredible insights into the area that I would call ag tech agricultural technology, which could end up being absolutely huge. And we should just set up, this is a slightly longer conversation that was recorded, not in a studio, but in our normal mobile studio of microphones wherever we are. So I think this is about a 15-minute conversation. And uh, yeah, a little bit echoey because we're in a hotel room just by the UN, but uh, that doesn't diminish I, I, the fascinating... I actually yeah. think Clay has an anti-echo machine, which he intends to deploy on that. I do, I do. It's a little bit echoey, but Clay's got an anti-echo machine he's planning <laughs> to deploy, so we'll see how that goes. Let's hear the interview. Let's hear the interview. David, so thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. We hear that you sometimes listen to the podcast, which is fantastic. So by now you know why we call ourselves Outrage and Optimism, because we feel that both of those sentiments are necessary. Um, they're both present uh, in out there in the, uh, in the climate movement, in the real world, as we call it. But we feel that it is necessary to have both of those in order to make constructive steps forward. Uh, so we are delighted to have you. Uh, we hope you will express both your sentiments on outrage as well as on optimism, but uh, feel free to, to fall on either side of, uh, of that fence. Um, David, I have a good friend who tells me that climate change is all about real estate because it's all about the location. Location, 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 which is the mantra of real estate, right? And I kind of suspect that you will agree with him because he says carbon in the air is an enemy. Carbon in the soil is a friend. And that what we really have to do is to change the location of carbon. Do you agree? I completely agree. Yeah. So, you know, the term carbon is often vilified in today's discussion, but... Of course, there's nothing wrong with carbon per se. It's the building block of life. We're all contained to carbon. The real problem is the distribution of it. So since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we've moved about 1.1 trillion tons of carbon out from under our feet in the form of coal and oil. And we've cut down forest, which is about another 600 billion tons of carbon that used to be contained in trees and vegetation. And we've plowed the soil, which released another 700 billion tons or so. And since burning... All in the same direction, all from the ground up into the air. Or the ocean. So, you know, burning carbon doesn't make it go away. It just redistributes it. So about 
1.3 trillion tons has gone into the ocean, which creates its own issues. Mm -hmm. And about a trillion tons has gone into the atmosphere. So it's not a carbon problem per se, it's a carbon distribution problem. And if the, the good news is it's addressable, we just have to recognize it for what it is, acknowledge that all of that free power that drove huge leaps in society for the last 250 years had unintended consequences. And now use that same level of innovation to address those unintended consequences. So talk to us about the innovation, because um, haven't you been recognized as being like number one disruptor? Disruptor could be positive or negative. I'm sure in this case it is positive. Hmm, my sister um, asked the same question. Is that good? Does, does she think it's positive or no, negative? No, she, she, she couldn't believe we would be number one and people like that. <laughs> so talk about, talk about that piece. Yeah. Well, so if we, if we want to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere we pretty much have to harness photosynthesis. You know, it, we, nature has given us this mechanism that all plants use. And you know, as you probably recall from eighth grade, plants use carbon dioxide, combine it with sunlight, and create sugars and cellulose. So literally every part of a plant used to be carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So. If we want to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it somewhere where it at least doesn't do harm and hopefully has benefit, photosynthesis is really the only technology. Tried and true for millions of years. It's worked for a long time, (laughs) doesn't cost anything, has a free source of energy. Like there's lots of good stuff. Beautiful (laughs) plants. Right. It's beautiful. Um, And it's scalable. So there are people working on other technologies to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, basically do what plants do. But right now, that's a tremendously expensive choice, and none of it is scaled. I mean, based on the numbers we just went through, we need to pull a trillion tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Anything that's going to impact that has to leverage photosynthesis. And there's basically three ways you can leverage photosynthesis. You can plant trees and preserve forests. You can leverage agricultural soil, so farmland and ranch land. Or in theory, you could leverage oceans, you know, by planting kelp or algae and figuring out how to harvest that. All three of those are big enough. Like they, they would impact hundreds of billions of, of tons All of atmosphere. All three individually. Individually. And two out of those three, oceans and agricultural land, are big enough to do it by themselves. A trillion plus tons of carbon dioxide, at least in potential. It's interesting that you uh, contrast that to what we call industrial CCS, or industrial carbon capture and storage. Um, Because I think of exactly what uh, the land-based activities that you have um, alluded to, not the ocean, but the land-based, um, as um, natural or biological carbon capture and storage. Mm-hmm. And it, it is it is such a contrast, right? It is such a contrast that those who are gratefully, because we might need them, um, investing money into industrial carbon capture and storage, first of all, they're not investing enough, but the technology is still expensive not proven to be safe, uh, very experimental, exactly the opposite to natural carbon capture and storage, which, as you say, millennia on this planet, very safe, tried and true, and we know how to do it. Right. So um, how do we accelerate that? Well, let me 
I'm going to answer your question, but let me do a quick differentiation. So there are there are machines that pull carbon dioxide out of the just general atmosphere. That's called direct air capture. There are also technologies people are working on to capture carbon dioxide from waste streams, like the flue gas from a coal plant or something. That's pretty different because now you've got this concentrated form, stream of carbon dioxide and you've probably got a heat source. So those technologies are much more promising, I think. You just can only Because of the concentration. Because of the concentration. It's just an easier problem to solve. Um, it doesn't... What they haven't solved it yet. <laughs> and it doesn't address sequestration, but it at least reduces emissions. So how do we accelerate the use of plants and biological uh, systems to pull down carbon dioxide? Mm -hmm. um, in my view, it's about incentives. What we know is that farmers can do this because a small percentage, but a large number, are doing this already. So they tend to use techniques called regenerative techniques, and they're often called regenerative farmers. So they plant cover crops, so they keep green plants on the field all the time. They use no-till practices, so instead of plowing the land, they plant right into last year's crop. They use a lot less fertilizer and chemicals, which also helps reduce emissions. They rotate their crops more often, and often they include animals uh, to graze on the land or the cover crops. Farmers are doing this today because they want to be more profitable. But one of the side effects is that they're seeing the carbon in their soil increase. And we've now interviewed hundreds of these farmers and gathered the data, and we can say with confidence that this works. There are farmers doing it today. So now all we have to do is provide the right incentives for other farmers to adopt those practices as well. No, I mean, these solutions are absolutely beautiful. And we talked to uh, Ethan Brown, the chief executive of uh, Beyond Meat, and we were saying like, how are you ever going to scale it? And that's really a question that, that I think our listeners would be fascinated by. You know, you're sitting there with all of this opportunity. I can see you beaming with the potential. It's very exciting. What's the secret to scaling it? What's the, what's the, the, the business miracle that you're going to perform and how are you going to do it? <laughs> the great thing about farms is they all have a farmer. So <laughs> there's somebody who has agency over yeah, that yeah, farm, yeah. who has responsibility for what happens on the farm and most likely the access to the labor to make it happen. So that's the reason I started with incentives. Scalability is built in. If we can figure out how to provide the right incentives to farmers and then measure what's happening, so be able to measure the, the carbon they're sequestering in the soil, we can get a really rapid change in a hurry because there are already millions of farmers out there, billions of farmers out there, who are who have the responsibility and the capability to make the changes we need as long as they have the financial incentives to do it. So is that about the end of commodities as we know them and we start introducing the kind of the premium product, which is the one that everyone wants to buy and people are kind of voting with their money for the solution? Is that how you see it working? Yeah, I think it works two ways. I think that is one of them. So, so the future doesn't include buying any food that you can't trace back to the farm if you choose to do so. That's not that far away. Traceability back to the farm so you not only know who grew it, but how it was grown, even the conditions that it was grown under are cap you know, possible within our current mm -hmm. te technical capabilities. So that's an example of sustainability built into the product. But it's also possible to separate sustainability from the product in the form of something like a carbon credit. So if we... if if farmers are going to provide this service to society of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and hold it in their soil, 
it would be reasonable to pay them for doing so. We, we do this already in the U.S. There is, a, there is a tax credit that oil companies get for pumping carbon dioxide into the, into the ground as part of enhanced oil recovery. It's $25 to $50 a ton. Wouldn't it be perfectly reasonable to pay farmers? Switch it over? (laughs) At least include them. (laughs) I'm more for switching it. (laughs) And of course, if governments impose carbon taxes or cap and trade, that's another good way to drive the incentives for farmers to do this. Okay. So some of our listeners are investors or people who advise investors or the wealthy or just Mm -hmm. people who want to be part of this next uh, revolution. So if there's going to be this huge change in agriculture in the years ahead, who are going to be the kind of winners or losers? How do you think about it as a, as a, as a sector? How do you invest in it? How do you, how do you get to be a part of it? Yeah. I'm tempted at this point to give out my cell phone number. But <laughs> that. That's okay. <laughs> you do that. So I, I think this is not yet well understood that while... Climate change is probably the biggest threat facing us as a species and as a planet. It's probably also the biggest financial opportunity of our time. Imagine the transformation that's going to happen as people's understanding of the problem continues to increase and their sense of urgency around it. And nowhere is that bigger than food and agriculture. Food and agriculture is already one of the largest industries in the world. It's arguably the most important industry in the world, and it is dead last in terms of adopting new technologies and business models. And consumers are going to care more about sustainability and health in this area than anywhere else, probably. So, you know, the investment opportunities are new business models that enable consumers to get the health and sustainability they're looking for. New technologies that enable farmers to farm in a way that consumers want them to use. So replacing chemicals and fertilizers, Um, new food brands that use sustainably produced healthy ingredients to give consumers what they're looking for and so forth. I mean, you you look forward with your your great company, you look forward with the the teraton initiative to take a a, a trillion tons out of the atmosphere. you know, as you as you scan the next ten years, what are you most excited about in terms of what what you're going to be delivering in in partnership with the this growing sector? Can I can I piggyback on Paul's Absolutely, question? Absolutely, jump in. Um, because I'm I'm very interested to know how how do you uh, put together the Terraton Initiative with Indigo, mm-hmm. uh, which is your company. One mm-hmm. is I'm assuming a nonprofit um, mm-hmm. initiative, and the other one is very much of a for profit. And so how how do you bring those two? together? I think what I'm most excited about is the next stage of understanding about climate. So we're now getting to the outrage portion. Yay, (laughs) finally. (laughs) It's the truth. Since this time last year, dramatically different. Even in the last six months, it's dramatically different. And so, you know, we need that trend to continue. Mm -hmm. And, And it's you know, we need more and more people aware of the problem and more and more people with a sense of urgency that we have to do something. But today, most of the something is still about reducing emissions. And we need to reduce emissions, but at some level, that all feels a little hopeless. Like, we can't reduce emissions enough. Right. <laughs> it's just, you know, we're walking off the cliff more slowly. Mm-hmm. 
what we have to do is absorb. Yeah. Turn it around, draw yeah. down, pull, pull Relocate carbon out. It. Yes. <laughs> and once you realize that that's possible and we start investing in those things, then it's a completely different mindset. Mm. Like when we're just talking about reducing emissions, it feels a little hopeless. And people who feel hopeless aren't motivated to action. Mm. But when you feel like there's a hopeful answer, now you can... And immediate and, and immediate simple. And scalable. And scalable. Um, well, then you can start to take action consistent with that optimism. And so that's what I'm most looking forward to is that continued evolution of how mm. people think about it. With regard to the Terraton Initiative, I'll, I'll sort of take you through our evolution of thinking. I, you know, We're constantly looking for ways to pay farmers to produce a specialty product rather than a commodity and to shift to more sustainable ways of doing it. And in the process of doing that, we were thinking about carbon credits and how can we pay them to perform this benefit to society. It's only as we got into it that we realized how big a potential impact this could have. In, in fact, it, you know, by about December or January of this year, we realized this might be the most hopeful thing we know about mm. with regard to climate change. You know, if, if we have a, a, a potential solution in front of us that is already scalable, affordable, and immediate, then now all we have to do is make it happen. Just do it. Right. And once we realized that, it was also imperative that we make it happen. You know, it's hard <laughs> yeah. to imagine at that point we say, yeah, that's a really big idea, but we don't have time to work on it. So, so we started to focus on it and we launched or announced the Terraton Initiative on June 12th. The response has been amazing. So we had hoped to sign up 3 million acres in the first 12 months. We're three months in and we've done nine and a half million acres. Wow. Like the, the, we just didn't know how farmers the were going to respond. all in the United States or else? Um, about 80% in the U.S., wow. 20% out. And, and that's with, you know, no sales and marketing. That's just people coming to the website and signing up and raising their hand. It's, wow. it's super exciting. That is exciting. Um, and so... In the course of doing this, we decided that in order to maximize the, the chances of success of Terraton, we needed to create it as a separate organization, a not-for-profit. And I so see. we have done so. Okay. Um, Indigo continues to provide a lot of services to that organization, mm. so we'd be the farmer-facing side of it. But, um, but we think you know, setting up as a separate organization allows us to have other founding partners, other sources of money into it. Um, allows people to donate to it, et cetera, in ways yeah. that yeah, you yeah, it gives you much really more do. flexibility. Yeah. So it's a sustainable farming movement you're building. Oh, I might use that. I like that a lot. <laughs> it's better than yeah. walking off a cliff slowly, which I'm, I'm never going to be able to get out of my head, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, not just us. I, I think increasingly the people that focus on this understand that there's a better way to farm. And our goal is to provide to provide those incentives and the education for farmers to make that shift as fast as possible. Wow. David, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to educate us, Paul and myself, mm. uh, and through us, all of our listeners. We really appreciate it um, because it's, it's something that we don't stop to think about enough. Uh, and how many of these solutions to climate change are literally just under our feet, right? Like this one. Mm. So pick up our feet and look right there. I'm going to use that too. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and really great luck building that movement. It seems like you've kind of nailed what could be the critical intervention. Thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.
cool. I mean, I've got to say, you know, it was it's so inspiring to hear people like David and the ways in which they're using this incredibly entrepreneurial approach to how incentives can work, to how science works, to how society can pivot to actually solving some of these problems. And, you know, just this this issue around locking carbon in the soil. I mean, those of us who've worked on this issue for a long time have kind of been aware of that. But to set it out in those clear terms, the scale of the problem that we're facing is so to do with changes in the soil, changes in the location of carbon in the overall carbon system. And we've got to get on top of that because it's it's insane that we're allowing that to go on and facing these terrible risks without actually taking some of these really what are no regrets measures to change the incentives in our economy and do something significant in a reasonably short time frame. Well, absolutely. And um you know, he, he's got a lovely folksy way of talking. Um, you know, I, I very much enjoy listening to him, but I'm just going to kind of zero in on a couple of, of, of the facts that he observed. You know, we've got three and a half billion acres currently being farmed uh, and that they have the capacity uh, to absorb a trillion tons of CO2 if we uh, work on it. I asked him how you can scale something like this and he points out every farm has a farmer, which is a very... Uh, Interesting point. But yeah. perhaps I think what's most exciting, he talked about um, agriculture being largely unchanged for 100 years. And uh, I actually saw one of his colleagues um, in a video saying that uh, indigo agriculture is the kind of Google of agriculture. And, you know, what is agriculture? It's 40% of the global workforce. Yeah. You know? So this is an extraordinary industry. And and when he talked about the decommodification of, of, of products, or at least the Indigo are talking about that now, you know, going from the kind of lowest price, disregarding whatever madness is involved in manufacturing it, through to kind of valuing food and there being premium products that people will pay more for. And that creates the business case. And of course, all through history, people have paid more money for better things. But it's I think it applies particularly to agriculture, but across all uh, systems, really, to, to move to a decommodification. We're just not on the lowest price anymore. We're now looking for quality, which when you're actually eating the product, is pretty important. Totally. And, and actually, essentially, if you look at historical spending patterns, you know, at the moment, and this is, this is sort of Europe and North America, and of course, it's different and, and very challenging in other parts of the world. But in Europe and North America, people spend between 5 and 8% of their income on food, which is the lowest level it's ever been. Historically, it's generally around 30 to 35%. And, you know, a, a, a skilled economist could explain to us in great detail, I'm sure, and maybe we should have someone on to explain the forces behind that. I mean, it must be to do with, you know, availability of housing, et cetera, et cetera, other things that shift invest or spending patterns elsewhere. But, you know, in a way, food is food is too cheap and it's being produced too cheaply. And the impacts that we're seeing on the soil and on the land are directly connected to this thirst for cheap food. And we need to evaluate more and find a way that everybody can get enough while investing in our land. I mean, don't get me wrong, Tom, I love the car industry. I love, you know, great computer companies like Apple. I love, you know, many brilliant companies. But, you know, if we're spending that much money on our cars, if we're spending that much money on our on our home decorations, if we're spending that much money on our clothes, on our on our on our footwear, on our computers, we're not spending that money on food. And I think because we've got incredibly good cars and computers already, a slight recalibration towards spending a greater percentage of our income on food will not damage the economy in any way at all. But it will, and this is where I got most excited, 
you know, David was talking about taking a trillion tons out of the atmosphere. And he talked about, you know, these slow emissions reductions are like slowly walking off a cliff. He had the vision to say, look, if we can actually draw down that trillion tons, we can get ourselves to a safe place quickly. And that particular image I find incredibly exciting. You know, I, I think you're in a minority of one or possibly two climate campaigners who I've ever heard say the phrase, I love the car industry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, good on you. We've got to love it, right? To find a no, way through I mean, it. And I, to, I love yeah. the car industry when, when, when Tesla produced a better <laughs> electric car than a, than a, than a petrol car. Um, I, a, a friend of mine just bought a Tesla, uh, my, 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 my friend Lisa, and uh, she said it's, it's made by kids. She said that there's a kind of fart button that you can press so when the, somebody sits in the passenger seat it makes a flatulence noise really <laughs> kind of crazy but i mean the point is just uh, having fun with cars i think uh, major car companies are talking more and more about you know software being part of the experience but um just one thing i want to say uh just to conclude on on uh, the magic of indigo agriculture and the whole ag tech revolution i do think for our listeners who are thinking about uh, the business side of all of this, uh, and many people will know far more about this than me, but I think that there are going to be big opportunities in verification, uh, mm. verification technologies, verification systems, because, you know, it's, it's, it's quite something, if you've got some kind of technology at a, at a location, at an industrial site, you can kind of measure uh, the emissions reductions there and then, you know, just less electricity consumption, less coal consumption, whatever. Whereas it's going to be, uh, the real challenge with a lot of this agricultural stuff is going to be able to demonstrate uh, the benefits. But I think that problem can be solved. And when it is solved, we could see a revolution in agriculture that, as Ethan Brown said uh, when we interviewed him, uh, the chief executive of Beyond Meat, he foresees a revolution in farming and agriculture that is as transformative and as positive for the farming communities as the information technology revolution has been yeah. for Silicon Valley. And I think that that, again, that's a, a vision of um, a sort of sharing of the benefits and the wealth uh, that will come out of decarbonizing society. Don't ever let you hear, uh, don't, sorry, don't ever believe economists, uh, whatever they may be, uh, when they say that responding to climate change is going to reduce GDP or reduce uh, the scale of the economy. It could be an absolutely huge bonus for our uh, often neglected agricultural communities who represent the kind of backbone of, of what the world actually does. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been fun. Yes, indeed. No, I, I enjoyed it. I missed Christiana. I wish she was uh, here. Well, of course. But yeah. she will wish be she back next week when we have a very special interview, if I'm not mistaken, Tom. We do. Christiana is back from Antarctica to tell us how she is. And we also have former Secretary of State John Kerry will be joining us for a conversation. And that is the last interview we have before our book comes out on the 25th, which is also very exciting. Okay, so tell us about the the book, Tom. Well, I won't tell you specifically about the book, although I hope you'll be hearing a lot more and maybe even reading about it. But what I will say is that we are going on a book tour. So um, that will be starting on the 25th. We have a big event at the New York Public Library um, and then subsequent events in New York that week. And then we go to Washington, where we have a public event with our friend Tom Friedman. The following week, which is the first week of March, we're back in the UK. We're doing a talk at the RSA, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, and also a Guardian Live event, amongst a range of other things. We're going on Ed Miliband's podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful. There's a whole bunch of fun things coming up. You can find out about all of that by going to globaloptimism.com where there is the range of dates and links to places we're going to be speaking. There's still tickets for some, others are sold out. Many of them are free, so but you've just got to register so that you can come along. Um, and all the details will be there, as well as links to places where 
you can pre-order the book. So all proceeds from the pre-order period go, as I think I've said before, to the Greenbelt movement in Africa. So please buy yourself a copy, buy one for friends between now and the 25th. It's a great cause and we want to support it. So we want to push as much as we can the pre-sale period of the book. The book is a fantastic book, by the way, to our listeners. I have read it and found it electrifying. It's wonderful. Uh, Christiana and Tom, the coffee and cream of climate change, a true (laughs) insight into uh, what is being done, what ought to be done. Uh, Unmissable, really. Um, That's it from us, I think. Great to be with you and looking forward to catching up next week. Bye for now. Bye for now. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Time is running out to pre-order Tom and Christiana's new book, The Future We Choose. Proceeds are going to the Greenbelt Movement, an incredible effort by our friend Wanjira Matai. You can go to globaloptimism.com to pre-order now. All right, without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Pete Cluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Cherlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. Send us a message. We love your feedback. Podcast at globaloptimism.com. And be sure to follow us online. We post things on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Global Optimism. Okay, last but not least, you're not going to want to miss next week's episode with former Secretary of State John Kerry. So hit subscribe, and we will see you right back here in your feed next week. See you then.